So let's get started, and uh, why don't we start with a word of prayer, since it's our uh, afternoon session, and then we'll turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, our High Priest, who reigns in heaven at your right hand as the King of heaven and earth, to whom you have given all authority in heaven and earth. We thank you that he reigns as head and king over the church, which is his body. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the ordinances of worship that he has given his church, through which we have communion with you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, bless us again, we pray, as we study the Holy Scriptures and give us a right understanding. Open our hearts to believe the Scriptures and give us the grace to be obedient to the Word of God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 4, this is a big text, one of the biggest texts in the New Testament on uh, the subject of worship, where our Lord Jesus Christ addresses specifically the subject of worship in his conversation that he has with the woman at the well. And this is the Samaritan woman. This is the story we all know very well, right? Uh, his uh, conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well while his disciples are away uh, she comes to draw water, he asks for a drink of water, and then the conversation begins. And in the conversation, you recall, um, he says to the woman, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she says in response to that, verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, I guess so, if he knows all that. <clears throat> and then in verse 20, she strikes up, uh, she shifts topics, rather, uh, to worship. And she goes to a, um, a debate that the Samaritans have had with the Jews regarding the proper place of worship, the proper location of worship. The Samaritans claimed that Mount Gerizim was the sacred site where God was to be worshipped, and the Jews said, no, Mount Zion, where the temple of God is built uh, there in Jerusalem, is the place to worship. So there was a long-going, standing debate between the Samaritans and the Jews who didn't get along very well, by the way, uh, with each other, concerning the proper place of worship. So um, the woman said to Jesus in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you, and the you here is plural in uh, the original, you say, meaning you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So uh, she brings up the point of the debate. When she perceives that he's a prophet, she wants to hear this prophet's opinion, or not opinion, she wants to hear from the prophet uh, the truth of the matter, to get it settled. So Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So the Jews were correct regarding the lawful place where people ought to worship. I think that's implied certainly in that statement there. Verse 23, though, but the hour is coming when that debate is no longer relevant. The hour is coming, and in fact, Jesus said, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That, those two nouns are linked together. The two nouns, spirit and truth, are linked together by the conjunction and, chi in the Greek, with a single article in front of them that is before spirit. So they're linked together in such a way uh, and by a single preposition and form a complex idea. In other words, you can't separate spirit from truth. To worship in spirit in truth 
uh, that phrase has to go together. It's not that we must worship in spirit and also worship in truth as if they're two different things. It's, it's one thing that he's talking about. So two sides of the same coin. Spirit truth, you might say, hyphenated. Spirit truth worship. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit slash truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then verse 24, God is spirit. I think that should be a capital S there. And those who worship him must worship in spirit. I think that also should be a capital S. And truth. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways we know that is the context has to do with Christ giving um, her, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. I would have given you a drink of living water. That would have become in you a spring of water, right? Springing up to everlasting life, which refers, of course, to the Holy Spirit, which John chapter 7 makes abundantly clear. Um, so verse 25, the woman said to him, <clears throat> I know that Messiah is coming. Now, this is interesting that she would bring that up because she understands that, that Jesus is speaking about the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus says the hour is coming and now here, she knows he's talking about the time of the Messianic age, the beginning of that Messianic era. I know that Messiah is coming, she says, who is called Christ. Uh, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, uh, very good. So let's look at the text here and see what it teaches us about worship. Worship in spirit and truth. First of all, one thing we can say here is that worship in spirit and truth, which Jesus says is the kind of worship that the Father seeks and has come because the hour that is coming is now here. It's time for this to occur. That is distinguished from that which was offered by both of the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim and the Jews in Jerusalem. So Jesus differentiates between the worship of the Samaritans and the worship of the, the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem. He distinguishes that from the kind of worship he's inaugurating. The hour is coming and is now here, which he calls worship in spirit and truth. So this, that differentiation is sometimes interpreted uh, as a contrast between external worship and internal worship. Have you all heard that before? I know you've probably heard that interpretation before. Worship that is external, such as the worship that the Samaritans would have offered at Mount Gerizim, or worship that is external, such as the Jews would have offered at um, Mount Zion, at the temple. External meaning it had all of the external uh, ceremonies, all of the rituals that were external versus internal worship. That's what worship in spirit and truth means, internal worship. I don't think that's the right interpretation. I think that's a wrong interpretation, actually. The contrast that Jesus makes between the worship the Samaritans offered and the worship the Jews offered and the worship he's talking about is not a contrast between external and internal. It's not a contrast between something outside of us and something inside of us. It's a contrast in history, something that occurred in history previously and that will no longer occur now. So it's a historical contrast, okay? a redemptive historical contrast. Worship in spirit and truth is a new kind of worship inaugurated by him in this era of history. So it's a contrast between two different kinds of worship, worship before his coming and worship after his coming. So Jesus contrasts worship... I don't have it up here anymore. I erased it. But remember when I had that really ugly chart that had uh, pre-eschatological over here 
and then semi-eschatological over here with the eschaton here at the end. Jesus is contrasting worship in this stage of history and worship in this stage of history. Worship in this stage of history is pre-eschatological. Worship in this stage of history is eschatological, at least in an inaugurated form. That's the worship that is in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth. That's what he's talking about. So listen to how he put it. The hour is coming. There's a time reference, right? The hour is coming when the dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans over the proper place of worship will become obsolete. And indeed, that hour is here. Now, what does that phrase refer to in the Gospel of John? You've read through the Gospel of John. His hour had not come. His hour had not yet come. And then what does he say in John 17? Father, the hour has come, right? What's the hour? His death, right? The hour is coming. That's the hour. So in, in John's gospel, the hour refers to the climactic moment when Jesus is glorified through his death, resurrection, and return to the Father, after which he sends the Holy Spirit. That's what the hour means here. So the hour in view in John 4 is an eschatological marker. Okay? It's referring to that eschatological moment when he's glorified, receives the second breath of the Spirit, returns to the Father, sends the Spirit. So it marks the beginning of the end, the commencement in history of the, the salvation of the Messianic age, okay, the new Christian age. Now the woman, and you know, interestingly, the woman has a better interpretation of his words than some, um, some interpreters today because she knows that's what he's talking about. She knows, she, she knows that the hour is that eschatological hour. It's the hour of the Messiah. So the woman rightly understands that he's speaking about um, the age of the Messiah. But Christ, uh, why does Christ say, uh, why does Christ uh, speak about the hour as both future and present? The hour is coming and is now here. What do you think? The hour is coming and is now here. It's future and is present. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh, right, very good. He said the overlap. There's an already and not yet to the coming hour. The hour has already come. It's now here, but it's also coming, right? So the age, that eschatological age, is already a present reality because Christ is present. The hour is coming and it's now here because I'm here. And the arrival of Christ signals the inbreaking of that hour. The hour is coming and it's now here. It's now here because he is here. Now, one commentator on the Gospel of John, a lady by the name of Gail O'Day, I don't know anything about her, so I don't know if she's good theologically or not, but this was a good quote, so I've got it from her commentary. Here's what she said, The hour is coming. The hour is coming is a word of promise and anticipation. The phrase, and is now here, signals that this anticipated time of promise and hope is upon us. Jesus' presence in the world changes a word of anticipation, the hour is coming, to a word of fulfillment, and is now here. So the coming of Christ ushered in a new age of worship that Jesus described as worship in spirit and truth in contrast to a previous age of worship. Worship in the Old Testament, let me put it maybe more concretely. Worship in the Old Testament was not worship in spirit and truth. It was not worship in spirit and truth. Now that makes a big difference if that's true. 
that makes a big difference in how we interpret the saying. It is only those, it, it is only those who worship the Father in the hour that is now here who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those who worshiped him before this hour has come were not worshiping him in spirit and truth. So the phrase has to be interpreted in the context of the intrusion of the hour brought about by the glorification of Christ, especially considering the fact that it is the hour of his glorification that makes worship in spirit and truth possible and indeed necessary. So worship in the new age of redemptive history, this age over here that used to be here, but it, imagine it's still over here. Um, worship in the new age of redemptive history is characterized by spirit and truth because it is the age of the spirit and truth. So that phrase is descriptive of the messianic age as a whole, and it's linked to the person of Jesus. Worship in spirit and truth is worship that occurs in union with Christ, who is the truth and life-giving spirit. That's probably the best way I can, uh, I can say it. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? It means to worship in Christ, in union with him, by the spirit who unites us to him, Christ who is the truth. So true worship in, in the spirit is only possible in union with Christ. His glorified body becomes the holy temple of God. True worship is performed in him. Now, if we were to go back, we don't have time to do it, but if we were to go back and look at John chapter 2, Jesus would have said concerning the temple, destroy this temple and what? I'll raise it up in three days. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. What was he speaking about? Himself, his body. This he said concerning his body, which the disciples did not understand at the time, but understood after his resurrection. I will raise it up in three days. So he referred to himself as the temple, and specifically him, himself as the temple as raised. It's his glorified risen body that becomes the temple in which we worship. That's where worship in spirit and truth is conducted. And it's only in Christ, it's only in the risen and glorified Christ, when we're united to him by the spirit, that we can worship in spirit. That wasn't occurring in the old covenant. Now it was occurring in typological form, in the form of types and copies and shadows that pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. Christ. So the eschatological hour of Christ's glorification released, we can put it this way, a new work of the Spirit. It supplied the necessary medium and vehicle through which and in the sphere of which worship in this new age takes place. And what is the sphere in which it takes place? The sphere of the Holy Spirit. It's the realm of the Spirit. It's upper register worship. The realm of the Spirit is the realm of the invisible. Okay, it's the realm of the upper register, the invisible temple in heaven. That's the invisible, or that's where the glory spirit dwells supremely. And so to worship in spirit is to worship in that realm where Christ is. Now, the redemption accomplished by Jesus and applied by the spirit brings into this eschatological realm, brings us into that eschatological realm in which we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Okay, let's go to, um, let's go to Hebrews uh, chapter, yeah, let's first turn over to, yes, sir. Good point. Um, we wouldn't say either one of those things, right? <laughs> Okay, 
truth is not in contrast to false. It's in contrast to what? Type. Okay? In spirit and truth. No longer in types and shadows and copies and replicas, but in the true, the reality. So truth means the real, the reality. Okay, that's, what, that's what's in view here. And the spirit obviously was at work in the old covenant. It, the spirit filled the tabernacle. The spirit filled the, the temple, right? Uh, but now that that type has given way, the spirit fills what? The church, right? Acts chapter 2. That's spirit, truth, worship. Acts chapter 2. That's when it began. Okay, why? Because um, the Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. John chapter 7. Remember that saying? So when Jesus is glorified, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 2, 32, 33, 34. Having received from the Father the gift of the Spirit, he has poured out this gift which you are now seeing and hearing. So he receives the gift from the Father. John 14, 15, 16. It's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. I've got to go away. I have to be glorified. I have to ascend. I have to receive from the Father the gift of the Spirit and pour that out on you. And until that occurs, worship in truth can't happen, because worship in type and shadow is still going on. It's not true versus false worship. And um, it's, it's true as opposed to typological worship. Okay, so the church itself is now constituted as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant. Any other questions, thoughts, comments, questions on that? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Uh, the distinctions between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. They can certainly be undervalued, underappreciated, uh, and there are ways to do that, such as worshiping on Saturday rather than on the Lord's Day would be, be one day to do that. But maybe another way to do that would be, um, and I don't mean to pick on people outside of our tradition, but the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church have a priesthood. Um, they have vestments, priestly vestments. Uh, they have um, smells and bells and candles and incense and all of the other things you find uh, in that approach to worship. And if you ask them, well, where do you find that in Scripture? They do find it in Scripture, but they find it in the Old Testament. And uh, their argument would be, well, God instituted in the Old Testament. It was acceptable to him. Of course, they do things that were not actually instituted in the Old Testament, too. But um, let's just take incense, for example, the use of incense in worship. What was, what was the incense for in worship? What, how was incense used in worship in the Old Covenant? Okay, it accompanied prayer. There's an altar of incense in the holy place in the tabernacle where the priest would go. Remember in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah the priest was chosen by Lot to enter into the holy place to offer the prayers. And he's there, there at the altar of incense praying and sees the angel. And the angel tells him he and his wife are going to have a son and so on. And he comes out and he can't speak. And it, said that the, it says in Luke chapter 1, the whole congregation of the people were outside waiting for him and praying at the hour of prayer, being the hour of incense. So prayer and incense. And of course in Revelation, the incense that comes up before God are the prayers of the saints. So it accompanied prayers. But where is that altar of incense? Right before the veil. Right? Uh, why is it there? 
It's the glory cloud. <clears throat> it's the type of the glory cloud. How else do we know that? One day a year, one day only, the high priest was allowed to go beyond the veil. Before he walked into that veil, what did he have to do? He had to carry the incense in there. He had to offer sacrifices. So, but he had, to, he had to fill the most holy place with incense. He had to completely fill it with incense. What was the symbolism of that? He's entering the glory cloud, just as Moses did on the top of Mount Sinai, just as Adam did at Mount Eden and so on. So um, why don't we use incense anymore? We don't have temple worship anymore. Why not? We are the temple. Where's the glory cloud? Acts 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound as a mighty rushing wind, filled the house where they were sitting. It rested on them, cloven tongues like as a fire. That's the glory cloud. That's the pillar of fire that rested on the church. So when the church has constituted the temple of God, a living temple, not made of dead stones, but living stones, and why is the church the temple of God? Because the glorified Christ is the temple of God and the church is the body of Christ. We're only the temple of God because we're united to him who is the temple of God. Christ who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He's the glorified temple of God. He's the one in whom the spirit of God, glory cloud, dwells in all of its fullness, right? And when we are united to him, we are constituted a, a spiritual temple, living temple. Other questions? Is that... So incense would be one example, one example among, among many. Uh, but all of the rites and the ceremonies, I say all, uh, the majority of the rites and ceremonies and the gestures, uh, the liturgical drama that accompanies Catholic worship and Eastern Orthodox worship, uh, they would certainly be able to find biblical precedence for that in the Old Testament. Uh, but that Old Testament typological form of worship has given way because it's we worship in spirit and truth not in types and shadows. And I think that's what it means, spirit and truth. It doesn't mean inward, not outward. Though it does have less outward glory, isn't that how the confession, confession puts it? Worship in the New Testament has less outward glory than worship in the Old Testament. But the movement, the movement is not, the movement from the Old Testament worship to New Testament worship is not external to internal, it's earthly to heavenly. The movement's upward, it's not inward, right? So it's, an, it's a heavenizing, it's an eschatologizing of worship. We've bumped up, the, <laughs> we've moved up toward the upper register. And that movement toward the upper register um, comes about because we're united to one who has moved fully into the upper register. All right, let's go to Hebrews. I said I'd, I'd give you 30 minutes and we've got um, six, six or seven minutes until we're there. Let's go to Hebrews. And uh, we'll look at chapters eight, five, or 8, 10, and 12. And so worship under the gospel, that's where we are now. We've talked about worship in the garden, worship under the law, and then worship under the gospel, our new covenant worship. Worship under the gospel is not merely a, a copy and shadow of heavenly worship. It is an actual participation in it. With the coming of Christ, the age, has the age to come has been inaugurated. And as a result, the boundaries between heaven and earth are in principle removed. But only in principle, because it's not until the end of the world when the boundaries are, are removed um, fully. Now they're only removed in, in principle. 
So those who worship the Father in spirit and truth join in the heavenly worship of the angels. That's what the goal, the original goal is of worship. So our high priest, Jesus Christ, has ascended into heaven. He leads us in worship, not in an earthly sanctuary, but in a heavenly sanctuary, heaven itself. And because we're united to him uh, through spirit-produced faith, we participate in heavenly worship, the worship of the age to come. So Hebrews 8, let's look at verse 1. And I'm going to read from my own translation. I hope it's not too different than the ESV. It's been a long time since I've translated it, so I don't recall if it is or not. So Hebrews 8, verse 1, the author says, and I'm picking it up, I think, around the middle of the verse. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Invisible realm, upper register. Notice how he's referred to as a high priest. Who's the high priest? He's the leader of Israel's worship. Jesus, as the new, uh, the ultimate high priest, is the leader of the church's worship. He's the leader of our worship. Verse 2, he is a minister of the holy places, the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle. There it is, the true, the true, not the copy, not the type, not the earthly replica, the true, real or genuine tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man, when did God set it up? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven, that's it, the invisible realm. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. They serve, look at the word, a copy. Now they're talking about the high priests in the Old Testament, Aaron and his successors. They serve a copy, model imitation, and shadow, a reflection of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, quote, see, he says, quote, that you make all things according to the pattern, the model that was shown you on the mountain. Now, I think that's Exodus 25:40 is what it's referring to. So Moses made the earthly tabernacle according to the heavenly tabernacle. It was patterned after it. Jesus is not in the earthly copy. He's in the heavenly copy. Now look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We read this earlier, but let's uh, just read it again. Verse 19. And again, this is my translation. I hope it's not too different from the ESV or whatever Bible you're using. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the holy place, or holy places, sanctuary, most holy place here, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, not the old and obsolete way. The old and obsolete way is the way of the Levitical tabernacle and priesthood and sacrifices. That's gone. It's obsolete because fulfilled in Christ. And we have, um, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, we enter the holy place that he opened for us through the veil, that is his flesh, Ooh, he's the temple. His flesh is the veil of the temple. You see it? Again, he's the one who's the, the temple. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He's the living temple. Okay, he's the living uh, as second Adam, as last Adam. He is the, the human uh, living temple, embodiment of the upper register temple. All right, one more, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and this really, I believe, is the clincher of um, these texts. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says, now, 
we spent quite a bit of time talking about Exodus 24 in the previous talk. Here you have a direct um, contrast with ex the mount in Exodus 24, Mount Sinai. Okay, it's, it's obviously reflecting on that text from Exodus chapter 24. And the author of Hebrews is contrasting uh, what he's about to say with that event. There is a contrast there, but there's also continuity because just like the Israelites at the mountain, we too are worshiping at a mountain. But it's mediated by a superior um, covenant mediator, Christ. There is a superior sacrifice, Christ. His blood is superior to any that was offered before and so on. But notice what it says in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. Verse 22, skip to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Notice that you have come to Mount Zion. That's not the earthly replica. That's the heavenly original. Mount Eden, Mount Sinai, earthly Mount Zion were all copies and shadows, earthly replicas of the original. We haven't gone there. We've gone to the original. How so? We're in the one who's there, Jesus. We're united to him. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Did you see that? The heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one. The earthly one's the counterpart, but the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable uh, to, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, festal liturgical assembly, okay, worshiping assembly, 23, and to the assembly or church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the perfected saints who are there, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel obviously refers back to uh, Genesis 4, but the sprinkled blood obviously refers back to Exodus 24. Moses sprinkled the blood on them and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord is making with you. This is the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. Uh, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks uh, better things than the blood of Abel. Now skip down to verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may, what? Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, sorry, I skipped a few verses in there. Um, but you can see the point here, um, the consuming fire, who is God, which is God, that's talking about the pillar of fire that descended in the glory cloud on Mount Sinai and which rests on Mount Zion. It's the same God. We're on that heavenly mountain because we are in Christ who, who leads us in worship there in that heavenly sanctuary. And we therefore are to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Let us have grace to worship him with reverence and awe. Maybe some other things to point out about the Hebrews 12 contrasting with the Exodus 24. The contrast is not that, um, the, okay, you gotta keep this in mind. There's a contrast between these two things, but there's also a warning that accompanies Hebrews chapter 12. Um, just as the Israelites, the author of Hebrews says, 
did not escape for uh, not giving heed to the voice of God when he spoke to them at Mount Sinai. How shall we escape? Okay, we shall not escape if we do not hear his voice and heed his voice. And so there is a warning here, and that's why he brings up specifically that God is a, God is a consuming fire. But the warning is something that goes, hand, it goes um, hand in hand with all the other warnings in Hebrews by which the author is warning uh, his readers not to fall away, not to turn back. And I think the temptation, I believe Hebrews was written to converted Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. Uh, these were Jewish uh, persons who had converted to Christianity and they were tempted to revert to Judaism. They were tempted to turn back to Judaism. So Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and so on, is warning them, don't fall away, don't turn back, but persevere and hold fast, hold firm to Christ in faith. That's it. That's worship under the gospel. That's a, a survey anyhow. There's a whole lot more we can say, but do I have any thoughts, comments, or questions? Everybody ready for a break? I know this was a short session, but it's the afternoon session, so maybe it would be helpful to stretch our legs and get some more sugar <laughs> or, or caffeine or something. Um, Yes, very good question. Um, third temple seekers, meaning seeking a, a rebuilding of the uh, physical temple on earth. Um, yeah. Well, um, I don't. I don't think uh, that the temple. I don't think Scripture predicts the rebuilding of the earthly temple. I do not believe uh, Ezekiel forty-seven has that in view, or um, what is it, 2 Thessalonians 2, or Revelation um, 10, I believe it is, or 11, one where it talks about the measuring of the temple. I think it's chapter 11. Yeah, it is 11. I don't think it has in view the earthly temple. I think, uh, I think Revelation 11, and uh, what was the first one I mentioned? I'm, I'm lost. Oh, yeah, Ezekiel, yeah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's vision of the temple, I think that's about the church. I think both of those are about the church. The best argument I have heard for that interpretation is from Greg Beale, who has written a book entitled um, The Temple and the Church's Mission. And it's a fantastic book. It really is a fantastic book. And he makes a very convincing argument from the scriptures that Ezekiel needs to be interpreted in terms of the church and Revelation Leaven needs to be interpreted in terms of the church as well. And I think Second Thessalonians 2 has something in view from the first century, not something that's going to happen at the, at the end of the world. Um, oh, I see what you're asking. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think there is. Um, if the temple is ever rebuilt and the sacrificial system is ever reinstituted, in Jerusalem, and I don't want to overstate this, nor do I, nor am I trying to be um, provocative or offensive. I think that would be a blasphemous thing. I think God would despise it. Uh, I think it would be blasphemous. All the warnings of Hebrews would apply to that. All of the warnings of Hebrews, um, including crucifying again the Son of God, right? If a Christian were to fall back into that, but uh, I also think it would be. Um, the acme of blasphemy 
because nothing is more blasphemous to God than to say that the sacrifice of your only begotten son is not enough to remove my sins forever. So um, I hope the dispensationalists are wrong <laughs> because that would be offensive to God if it's ever reinstituted. Uh, I think it is. Um, so the question had to do with uh, the sacrifice of the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I also think that's um, very offensive to God uh, because Christ died once, hapax, right? Once and for all. Um, and there's no need for a repetition of his sacrifice to make it. Um, it's not needed because it was sufficient to remove our sins forever. Now, the best of the Roman Catholics, I should say, uh, among their scholars and theologians and even historically will argue that there is no repetition of the sacrifice uh, of Jesus on the cross in the Mass. What they say, and I've done a lot of research on this actually, I spent a whole year studying this and wrote a paper on it um, and gave it, I gave it as a lecture a couple years ago at the Reform Forum, it's online. What they say is, the sacrifice of the Mass, you know what I mean by that, right? In the Mass, um, the priest who's officiating in um, the Eucharist or the, the Mass offers up, one, offers up to the Father the sacrifice of Christ. Now, what they say is the sacrifice that is offered in the Mass daily or multiple times a day is not a new sacrifice. It's not an additional sacrifice. It's not a repetition of a sacrifice. It just is the sacrifice. It's numerically one and the same with the sacrifice that Jesus uh, uh, suffered or offered on Calvary. Why is it numerically one and the same with that one? Because it's the same victim that was offered here. How so? Transubstantiation. When the bread and wine are transubstantiated, you have the same victim, and it's the same priest who offered it here. Christ himself is offering it um, in, through the agency of the human priest, or the, er the earthly priest, I should say, who's speaking as the voice of Christ and offering it on behalf of Christ. So they say it's one and the same. It's numerically one. There are no additional, no repetitious sacrifices. Now, how that comes about, they will, give, they will say is a mystery. It's miraculous. It's the miracle of transubstantiation. It's the miracle of the sacrifice. But it's almost like a a sacramental time machine, right? So when the priest, and it actually, that's not a bad way of putting it, um, because uh, what they say um, is, whenever a sacred event occurred in time, and, the, and a rite or a ceremony, a ritual, is given to reenact that event, then whenever that event is reenacted by the ritual, you go back in time, you transcend time and participate in the original event. So it's a sacramental time travel, it's a time machine. So uh, when the priest offers mass and the sacrifice of Christ in the mass, it is the same sacrifice occurring uh, and it occurs, it's not as if, it, I mean, it's kind of occurring later in history, but it's as if he has transcended history, as if he's left history, and the worshipers who are there are reunited with, with that one. Yeah. Not what 
Yes, yeah. To call it a re-sacrifice is not, is not accurate, and they would never ag agree with that. I mean, as Okay, yeah. Now, what you just said, Christ physically comes down from heaven, they would say no. There's no... The body of Jesus is in heaven and doesn't move from heaven. There's no, they deny what's called, uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, I guess it's been too long since I've researched. What's that? No, 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 not that. Uh, they deny, they deny the, the geographical movement, okay, that there's, there's a technical word for it, but that Christ doesn't move from one location to the next um, when it happens. Um, how does it happen? I don't really know. <laughs> I don't think they know either. Um, but there's no local movement. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's out there. It's all out there. You can study it. Uh, but uh, I think it's, uh, I think the theory that stands behind it is wrong for several reasons. But one of the main things that they miss is what is it that applies to, if, to us the sacrificial death of Christ? It's not some sort of um, magical sacramental time machine that lifts us out of time and space and puts us back here. What is it that applies to us the sacrificial death of Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. He does it. What are they missing? The Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, certainly transcends space, he unites us to Christ, not by any physical movement. We are in Christ by spiritual union. The Spirit has united us to Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews can say that we are on Mount Zion. Right? We have come to Mount Zion because that's where Christ is. He's in Mount Zion. Now, we don't see any of that. Uh, we we won't, won't see any of it until Christ returns. But it is nevertheless true of us. And that same Spirit, um, that same Spirit, takes the saving work of Christ and applies it to us uh, in time. I think that's what they're, they're missing. Yes, yeah. The, yes, that's right. It's like, it's almost as if um, that the death of Jesus doesn't occur in the lower register, it occurs in the upper register. And, what, and the sacrament is given to us to take us out of the lower register and put us in the upper register with him. So they, they, they deny the human substitutionary aspect of atonement in the first place. Now that's my understanding. Uh -huh. Was they would not say that Christ died in our place, but that mm -hmm. that he merits because of the great value of the sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. And we piecemeal it out over time. Yeah, they piecemeal it out if you can afford it. If you can yeah. pay for it. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> all it is. Let's not put that on the tape. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, they sell it, and you can purchase it and buy it. I had a barber in New Jersey, <laughs> sweet man, older man, and uh, <laughs> funny guy. But um, first time I went and got a haircut with him, and I know, I mean, I gave up on my hair in high school. That's when I started losing it. But first time I went and got a haircut with him, uh, first thing he said to me, 
and almost the last thing he said to me was, regular haircut? I said, yes. <laughs> he gave me a regular barber's haircut, whatever that meant. But um, he never asked me again in the eight years I went to him, you want hair different or anything? Just gave me a regular. But he used to be Catholic, and uh, why am I talking about this? Uh, <laughs> we're talking about selling. Um, oh, it's what he left the Catholic Church because he couldn't, uh, he couldn't afford their salvation or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> That's why he was too poor to, to get into heaven. You know, any other thoughts, comments? You want to take a break, stretch our legs, and refuel? Let's do that.